0: A remarkable text of Scripture before us. Listen now to the Word of God. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this And that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So that the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted, uh, uh, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, "'Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky?' Seeing then that these things cannot be denied,' You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And so reads the word of God. It is widely held in our day that we've never seen such evil, such crime, such confusion, such social and political unrest, such moral decline as we're seeing today on the streets of America's cities and in our state houses and in big businesses and even in our schools. We're hearing from Springfield what's required teaching these days. We're talking with our people who are involved in the marketplace and big business and are hearing what is required in order for them to continue on in good standing in their place of work, what they have to believe about the issues that face us as a nation these days. And in keeping with typical American exceptionalism, we believe this evil and unrest, this decline is unprecedented in all of human history that it's never been worse than it is today right here in the United States. But this morning we are visiting a city from the first century that I believe might even exceed what we're seeing here and now in our day. But make no mistake, even so, it's a good study for us to see what happens when gospel ministry and this kind of Rabid secularism and spiritism come into contact with one another, what happens when they meet head on. Head on. We're talking about Ephesus, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, located on the banks of the Aegean Sea and the Caester River. Ephesus was the site, as we just read, of the Temple of Artemis, That's the Greek name, the Roman name, Diana. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that temple, there in Ephesus. Probably the basis of Paul's statement to Timothy that the gospel, that we are the church, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillars and buttresses of that temple were famous. And this cult plays a central role in our passage today. Artemis was associated with the moon and the night in Roman, the- Roman mythology, so she held a torch to bring light into the darkness. She was also a hunter, so she carried a bow and an arrow, much like Apollo did. And she was a goddess of fertility, but from an Asian origin rather than a Greek. So she's linked up, historians tell us, with the Amazons. Who also came out of that area the frantic and fanatical worship practices that were associated with Artemis in that temple were interwoven with those of the Canaanite goddess Asherah the commentators also tell us these practices aren't only disturbingly immoral sexually as you would expect with a goddess of fertility But at times, they were grotesquely brutal, bloody, even murderous. I was talking with the preaching team about this this week, just reading on some of the subjects of the interweaving of these different practices of worship for fertility goddesses. And it can't even be mentioned in polite company. But we'll have it as a backdrop as we consider the gospel entering Ephesus and how it was received there. Life in Ephesus could seem like to us that it was just incomprehensibly irrational. We hear them talking as though this stone that fell from the sky was some sort of divine confirmation of the temple of Artemis there in their city. Or when we hear them talking about their magic arts and the different things they tried to do, It can seem to us incomprehensibly irrational. Ah, that's the ancient world. Oh, my friends, it isn't. It isn't. In some ways, we distanced ourselves, saying this isn't the worst it's been in human history, what's going on in America right now. But in another, we can't separate the irrationality of their spiritism and selfism from ourselves and from what we face in our day. It can't be separated out. So even though life could seem incomprehensibly irrational to us in Ephesus, at the same time we see clear indicators here, even in this text, that, that all this drama was happening in and around otherwise normal life in a big city where governing authorities and the rule of law were still honored. It was a city clerk who came out and put this thing to rest and the people went home. They still respected their leaders, and they followed what was said. This is an intermix, just like we're seeing in our world today. Ephesus is a study for us that can be beneficial and helpful. So let's review this story of the Ephesian experience. And then let's assess it for its impact. And you can see the two-point outline there. We're going to cover this story essentially in categories under the first point there, the remarkable story of the gospel coming to Ephesus. And then we're going to consider the remarkable impact this should have on us today. We're just going to distill a few lessons, which barely scratches the surface of what we could draw out of this text today, but helps us, I think, get our arms around it a bit and have something to take away with us due to the notable similarities between life in Ephesus and life in 21st century western suburban Chicago or Chicagoland, shall we say. So we've read this text. Let's identify now five things that were going wrong in Ephesus. That's how we're going to move through this story. You've heard the story. It's a com- compelling story. I don't want to just retell the story, so I want to categorize it into five different things that were going wrong there in Ephesus. There's a little interlude mixed in here as well. So let's look first at the number one issue that we can identify, just moving in order through the text, actually comes out of last week's passage. We'll call it Various Misbeliefs. That's the first thing that was going wrong in Ephesus. Various misbeliefs. We looked at this primarily last week in verses 1 through 7. These 12 men that are there mentioned in verse 7, described by Luke as disciples in verse 1, but they received not only the Holy Spirit and Christian baptism for the first time here, it also appears as though this may have been the occasion in which they received Christ as Savior. Now, these folks thought they were saved, but they They weren't, or so it appears. Various misbeliefs. We can see that repeated again in the sons of Sceva as they are seeking to act as though they are genuine believers and find out that there's a difference between acting and reality. We also see it in the the next chapter. And we'll make a couple of references to Acts 20 this week, and Kip is going to be taking Acts 20 over the next two Sundays and walking us through that experience. As Paul finishes in Ephesus, moves through other areas, comes back and meets with the Ephesian elders, we can see among the Ephesian elders that even some of them hadn't savingly believed. They probably thought they had, but they were were going to rise up and, and, and in the end prove to be false teachers, wolves devouring the flock. Verses 29 and 30 of chapter 20. Various expressions of misbelief were a real problem in Ephesus and misbelief can really jam the doorway to true belief. That's why we saw Priscilla and Aquila address Apollos last week. Something was wrong with his teaching and they identified it and they addressed it. They took him aside and worked with him. Because misbelief gets in the way of the genuine gospel spreading. It gets in the way of true belief. It's one of the reasons we were talking last week about appreciating the statements on doctrine and theology that are part of just the the word and part of our identity as a church, familiarizing ourselves with them. It was just last week that one of our guys identified, just in listening to a friend talk, Some misunderstandings about baptism that ended up having us at the same table over breakfast so that we could talk about baptism. How does that happen? It's because we don't all have to guard the truth in equal depth and clarity, but we have to have enough of it in our ears so that when we hear misbelief and misunderstanding, we think, something's not quite right there. I need to go sit down with somebody who understands this. Let's talk about it. And this belief is a big problem in the church. It was particularly a problem in Ephesus, and we see multiple expressions of it. How often have you seen a professing Christian outspoken talk about our faith in ways that make you wish they would keep quiet? Do you hear that from time to time? People talking about the faith in ways that you just wish, you know what? people would be better off not hearing about Jesus through you because you're distorting the message. Misbelief jams the doorway of true belief. If you've met someone like that, how often have you met someone who is resistant to the gospel only to find out that they knew someone like that somewhere in their past and they just don't want to be like that person? We can see these kinds of things still today, how misbelief sets up such a roadblock to true belief. Second category, ethnic pride, verses 8 through 10. Ethnic pride, in-group versus out-group. As usual, Paul began his work among the Jews in the synagogue there in verse 8. This time it was three months, also verse 8, before the stubborn unbelief of some overflowed, verse 9. So he took those who listened, he took the disciples, again, second use of that word here in chapter 19, these true disciples who were responding to the word of God being preached, and he enrolled them in a daily Bible school at the Tyrannus Lecture Hall. Every day he taught. This went on for two years, the text says, and also seems to have included an an outreach plan. It's some sort of a practical Christian ministry department or something. Since you can see it there in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It appears as though these people who were learning daily from Paul were going out into the streets and sharing what they had heard. And the word spread throughout Asia by this means. But all due to Jewish opposition to the ethnic pride that forced them out of the synagogue, put them in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And that's part of the gospel now spreading not just to the Jews, but to the Greeks as well. Again, we still see things like this happening today, sort of a jealous holding of spiritual or biblical truth such that it forces the message out into the broader world. The Roman Catholic Church is one of the places where we see this happening. And the Reformation and what has happened as a result of the truth being addressed and saying, wow, something's wrong in that message. And the church saying, no, something's wrong with you. And there's a break and the gospel spreads. We can also see it in mainline denominations as they reject the clear gospel because they believe they have a better version of it in the social gospel, or in humanitarian compassion alone. That's in-group pride. That's how the same sort of ethnic pride that we see in the Jews back in Ephesus plays out in our day. We're guarding what we've got. But the net result is the true gospel spreads, even as it clarifies itself in response to misbelief in different in groups. Third category. This is a big one in Ephesus. We'll take a few extra minutes with this. Spiritual warfare. <laughs> there was some spiritual warfare in Ephesus. Would you agree? This is an amazing story. No story like this anywhere else in the New Testament with the spread of the church. Nothing like what we see in Ephesus. I'm not saying it didn't happen anywhere else. But here is where the story is told of what some of the opposition could look like. And it got crazy in Ephesus. But spiritual warfare was right at the heart of it. And here's where we could say things get interesting. Luke writes here in verse 11. God was, this is verses 11 through 20, by the way. I don't know if I gave you the, the passage, 11 through 20. Luke writes here in verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Do you wonder what's qualified, what what a miracle has to do or be in order to qualify as an extraordinary miracle? Um, You think all of them are extraordinary. Well, God worked extraordinary miracles through Paul, and Luke gives us an example of one category here that's just it's stunning. Faith healers are still trying this today, thinking that somehow the method was something God endorsed. Foolishness. He was working in Ephesus. Verse 12, handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Is this the power of the skin of Paul? No. No. It's the power of God in this city where there's a showdown. There is spiritual warfare happening in this place and this is the way God Is multiplying the ministry of his appointed apostle in this city. What's associated with Paul does the work of God because Paul himself is in Christ bringing that message to this city. But no matter how you slice it, this is an extraordinary miracle. Another example is seen with those who tried varying ways of wielding the Spirit's power without confessing Jesus as Lord. So they're bypassing Paul's message and yet trying to implement his methods. Listen to this and be introduced to a vocation that you probably don't hear about every day. There in verse 13, itinerant Jewish exorcists. That's a strange category of work, isn't it? I don't know that we run across that in very many places, but it's a a brief little three-word description of how far the Jews had gotten from Old Covenant life. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. They just entered into this spiritually charged life and atmosphere there in Ephesus and were shaped more by the culture than shaping it in the likeness of the Word of God. Verse 13, let's just walk through this. There's... Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, not good, not wise. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. That might not sound Hebrew. James Strong says the name means mind reader. So, even in the name of the high priest, we get indication of spiritism. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And that had to be a frightening moment when they heard that statement. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And here's the name of today's sermon. Here's our title. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The power of God is being put on display in that environment against the backdrop of the foolishness and irrationality and spiritual darkness in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. The power to overcome evil is not merely knowing Jesus' name. That's not what it means when we say that these things are done in the name of Jesus. It's not just a matter of knowing his name. It's a matter of knowing him, of being in him by faith, trusting in Christ as Savior, dying to self, rising in newness of life to him in faith, receiving his cleansing, his death, paying the penalty for my sin, his life, granted to me by faith, imputed with the righteousness of Christ such that when God looks at me, I not only am alive, but I am as righteous as Christ is righteous, not because I bear that righteousness in myself, but because it has been conferred to me, imputed to me by faith in Jesus That separated Paul from the sons of Sceva, and they felt that difference that day. The intensity of the warfare was confirmed further by the response of the people there in Ephesus to the gospel as they embraced Christ by faith. It changed their lives. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Public confession of sin. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, or the old way to say it, 50,000 drachmas, that's the daily wage of 50,000 workmen. Or if you want to do the math, the combined annual wages of 160 of them, or if you want to stretch it out and say it even differently this is a year's wages for 160 years the value of the religious paraphernalia that was consumed in the flames that day so there's the spiritual warfare quick aside verses 20 to 22 here Luke paused for a moment to summarize so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's his gospel report. In the midst of all of this, the word of God is going forth. That's synonymous with people embracing the gospel by faith. And Paul decided it was time to move then from Ephesus and go on to Jerusalem and then to Rome. He likely wanted to visit Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth as he says here in verse 21, along the way, then after getting back to Jerusalem to go on to Rome, and we hear a little bit more about that in Romans as well. But he needed to go to Jerusalem first, and that's significant. That'll be part of the story. I won't talk about that now. Time is limited. But as he goes back to Jerusalem, the story actually takes a turn at that point and some significant things happen. So i just point out now he returns to Jerusalem, but it is a significant thing. At this point, though, here in Acts 19, verses 20 to 22, he sent Timothy and Erastus to make arrangements in Macedonia while he stayed a bit longer in Ephesus. So there's the little aside in the middle of this section and now we get on to the fourth issue of opposition that was going on there in Ephesus and we'll call this cultural hostility this one's got a fair amount of detail as well so let's walk through it quickly here shall we this is verses 17 through 41 it goes all the way through to the end and then we'll have a fifth one that actually draws on Acts 20 again so cultural hostility there's the fourth one Maybe Paul should have left with Timothy and Erastus. That's our first summary statement. Um, All the activity, all of his activity here in Ephesus to this point had aroused so much attention... That this man Demetrius identified as a silversmith along with some other craftsmen, verse 24, who, who made shrines of Artemis. They probably made little statuettes of the goddess or little models of the temple for people to take with them when they went. Little reminders of the greatness of Artemis of the Ephesians. They were all concerned about losing their profits. We call this cultural hostility. It could also have been economic hostility. There's a financial underpinning to this. And whenever you threaten someone's uh, cash flow, someone's income, uh, things are going to go bad. Paul saw that already in Philippi as he healed the slave girl. Now we see it again here in Ephesus as he is preaching against false gods and saying gods made with hands are not gods. That's what he's charged with by these guys. So they were concerned about losing their profits. Not only that, they were concerned about their gold standard. So they weren't just concerned about their income. They were concerned about what was backing up their economy. And Artemis and her temple were backing up their economy. That were the, those were the gold bars that were kept in the vault at Fort Knox for them. They were concerned about their religion being discredited. So not only is Paul cutting into the prophets, he's discrediting the foundation of their economic stability. Verse 27, There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. That's what Demetrius is saying to this little assemblage of tradesmen that he has called together, a trade show in the Ephesian theater. (laughs) Another quick aside, just on this point alone, if the power of your God can be nullified by financial reversal, you've not yet found a worthy God. That one's got to sink in a moment because that has wide-ranging implications well beyond Demetrius and his band of workers. If the power of your God can be nullified by financial reversal, you've not yet found a worthy God. Job discovered that. We've read the conclusion of his story. He has discovered that his wealth was not the basis of his righteousness. God knew that all along. Still had some correction to do, Job, when the story was finished. But if financial reversal in your life can cause you to question the goodness and presence and power of God... then the God of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit aren't your primary God. There's a lesson we can take with us. If the power of our God can be nullified or called into significant question by financial reversal, you've not found a worthy God. The same is true if your God needs your help to survive like was going on with Demetrius and the tradesmen in defense of Artemis. If your God needs your help to survive, you haven't found the true God yet. In the real world, we need God. He does not need us. I said that was a quick aside. I'm tempted to preach there the rest of the morning, but I'm going to let that go. All right. Let's move on with this cultural hostility that was being experienced here in Ephesus. This group of of tradesmen so stirred up the people that an angry, riotous mob began chanting, as you read, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, verse 28, and a couple of Paul's helpers there, Gaius and Aristarchus, were seized by the crowd as they rushed together into the theater, an area that That those who have toured Ephesus, and we've actually been there. No, we haven't been to Ephesus. We've been to Corinth. I'd love to go to Ephesus. That's a harder place to get to because of where it's located. But you can still visit the city, and there are ancient ruins there. That area, the theater, could accommodate, we're told, about 25,000 people. Paul wanted to address the crowd, but it was just too dangerous to do so. We don't know how many were there but they were pouring into the theater. Both his students and some of the political leaders, verse 30 and verse 31 respectively, said so. Paul, don't go out there. The whole city was in chaos. Verse 32. I I, I joke about this verse often, but it's no joke. If you have an NIV, the whole assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most people did not even know why they were there. Just swept up in the mass hysteria. Sound familiar? We've seen this on our own streets over the last year or two. The whole city was in chaos. The Jews tried to gain control of the situation through this guy named Alexander, but That was unsuccessful, verses 33 and 34. The riot went on for two hours then before calmer heads prevailed. Then the city clerk reassured the people, recounting some rather remarkable but pretty commonly accepted qualities of Artemis and her image that can sound strange to us, but wow, strange has a new definition for us these days, or at least I hope it does. What he said was, verse 35, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper, the guardian of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing that these things cannot be denied, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. (laughs) It's an amazing little... Speech the city clerk gave. The city clerk was the liaison between the civic government there in in Ephesus and the Roman proconsul, the Roman government. He would have been held responsible for this riot. So he was motivated as he spoke to the crowd. As to the sacred stone falling from the sky, that's literally what they believed. It probably was a meteor that landed there in Ephesus. But for them, it was confirmation of the amazing power and presence of the temple of Artemis. It was an underscoring of their false religious beliefs. And so they they treasured this stone that fell from the sky right alongside of Artemis, their goddess. Still, think of this. Paul had taught for an extended time there in Ephesus, but the city clerk could still say publicly that he had not blasphemed Artemis. Whatever Paul was doing in the proclamation of the gospel and the diminishing, the tearing down of false belief, he did not do it in such a way that was disrespectful to the Ephesian people. Isn't that interesting? He could say to the crowd, he has not blasphemed Artemis, verse 37. Verse 37. Further, he reminded them that if they had charges against Paul and the others, they should work through the courts and due process. That's verses 37 to 41. Otherwise, they themselves would end up in trouble. The people listened to their city clerk and they dispersed and it was over. They went home. So those are the first four of the five. The one short one we'll add, issues that were going on in Ephesus that flavored the experience of the spread of the gospel there. This one we'll call inexperienced leadership. And you have to look into chapter 20, verses 17 to 38 to see it. So it's still coming. This was another challenge faced by the Ephesian church, though, that we'll consider as it comes up in the next couple of weeks. But here, suffice it to say that the elders there were not yet fully equipped to handle the sort of environment that's happening here in Ephesus even after Paul's three years of ministry night and day among them. And you see that by the fact that some of them were turning aside from the truth, embracing falsehood and teaching that in the church. It's referenced there. It's then addressed in some of the Ephesian correspondence in the remainder of the New Testament. So inexperienced leadership goes right alongside of misbeliefs back at the start of the list and everything else that goes into it, to explain and understand and sort of get our arms around the experience that happened there in Ephesus. But now let's talk about the remarkable impact this could or should have on us today. Let's identify three practical takeaways that can help us today. Three practical takeaways as we look into this section. First of all, I'm going to give these as principles, but you're going to need to listen to me explain them because I'm not sure each of them is discernible just by the statement. A desire to follow Christ, however sincere, does not equal salvation. There's one takeaway from Ephesus. A desire to follow Christ, however sincere, does not equal salvation. Those men who were called disciples in verse 1 didn't even know the Lord. The very same thing was true of the sons of Sceva who were pretending to know the Lord they didn't. Just calling on the name of Jesus wasn't enough. They hadn't trusted. They hadn't savingly believed. The same is true then of the the elders that we hear warning about in chapter 20. A desire to follow Christ, however sincere, does not equal salvation. And it's way too easy to get this wrong. I would suggest to you that C.S. Lewis got this one wrong. You can read his illustration of salvation in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, when he makes the statement that sincere service to Tosh, the, the picture of Satan himself in that volume, sincere service to Tosh is received as service to Aslan because of the sincerity false that is false a desire to follow christ however sincere it might be is not the same thing as salvation it's not the same way same, same thing as savingly believing trusting in christ as savior there is one name given among men whereby we must be saved and that's the name of jesus he is our salvation he is our reconciliation to God. We trust in Him. We repent of our sins and believe in Him, and His righteousness becomes ours, and our penalty is laid on Him. That's how it works. That's how salvation works. So a desire to follow Christ, however sincere, does not equal salvation. A lesson we see underscored here in Ephesus. Second, a riot in opposition to the truth does not make the truth false. We need to hear this one today. A riot in opposition to the truth does not make the truth false. Notice that Paul did not even consider the possibility that the angry mob was right about the things they were saying about Artemis. And although we may be tempted to say, of course he didn't, I wonder how we'd handle a rioting mob. Think of pro abortion demonstrations. Think of Black Lives Matter protests. Think of pride parades. Think of the fluid gender discussions in which even our supposed experts actually seem to believe that human gender is not binary. Absurdness irrationality on an inconceivable level, and we face it right now, here, today. How do we respond to that? Think of how many different ways people try to discredit an exclusive gospel, denying that reconciliation with God comes in Christ alone. There's got to be other ways. Have you ever been tempted to wonder if abortion really isn't murder because of all of the otherwise rational people who don't seem to think it is? Have you ever been tempted to think that maybe it is impossible to be delivered from homosexual desire? Or wrong even to try? Just because so many say they were born that way. Or maybe you've been tempted to think that marriage really, really doesn't need to be a purely heterosexual institution. What do we have against people loving one another in our day? You ever been tempted in these ways? Unfortunately, it seems to me like the vast majority of our responses to things like this is either irrational, red-faced, shouting anger or gradually moving toward peripheral acceptance. Without a whole lot of examples in the church of a strong, principled, loving, unyielding proclamation of the truth. Have you ever been tempted to think that God may favor love over justice on judgment day just because you know an unbeliever who really does seem to be a nice person? Truth is truth, my friends, even when this world opposes it, even if there's a riot in response to it. And irrationality is surely just as alive and well today as it was back in first century Ephesus. This isn't theory for us, this is daily practice. How to stand firm on the truth in the midst of almost inconceivable irrationality. Third principle, because our time is getting away from us. And this one's a little opaque, but stay with me on this. A gift plus an opportunity does not equal a calling. I think this is a good takeaway from Ephesus and Acts 19. A gift plus an opportunity doesn't equal a calling. Let me explain it. And you're going to have to listen closely on this one, all right? We can see that Ephesus was in need of the gospel. Agreed? And we know from their responses here listed, verse 10, 17 and 18, verse 20 and elsewhere, we know that they were hungry for the gospel. So they needed the gospel. They were hungry for the gospel. They responded to the gospel when it was preached. And yet Paul on his second journey, had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia. Chapter 16, verse 6. That is such a strange statement that we have to keep coming back to it to say, why? What could possibly be the reason? I think this might be it. A gift plus an opportunity doesn't necessarily equal a calling. Paul had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Then again, in chapter 18, he's there, but for some unexplained reason, couldn't stay there at the end of the second journey. He actually got to Ephesus, but he left and said, I'll come back if the Lord wills, and the Lord willed, and that's what we're seeing here in today's text. The only conclusion we can reach is that it simply wasn't God's time for Paul to be in Asia yet until the time that he actually went and spent three years there. So an inescapable entailment of that conclusion is a gift plus an opportunity does not equal a calling. Paul was ready with the gospel. Ephesus was ready with their need and their heart to respond. God's timing wasn't pleasant, present yet. And so Paul ministered elsewhere. To be clearer, just because Paul was there earlier and, the, and Ephesus was surely in need of the gospel, God did not put the two together until now. For us, just because we have a gift and know some place where there's a need for that gift to be exercised, we can't immediately assume that we're God's answer to that need right here and now. Think of calling a pastor, for instance, recognizing God's anointed from among a field of qualified candidates requires God's leading. Often, though, the hardest part is recognizing when God's appointed isn't within that field of otherwise qualified candidates. They're there. The need is present. But there isn't a calling here. We need to remember this lesson in our life in Christian service. We need to. It's essential. You've heard it from me before in different contexts, but it comes up again and again. And This is such a compelling one here. Yes, we should all be involved in the work of the ministry using our gifts, but we don't do so indiscriminately or at our own choosing. Even when our gifts match a need, we still need to wait for God's calling to become clear, and it's hard to say that without giving a quick word on how do you do that. So a quick word, how does that work? Pray and wait. That's how it works. Sounds biblical, right? Pray and wait. Our God doesn't hide His will and purpose. He wants us to engage in His will and purpose. He delights to make His will and purpose known. So Gene's in my practice over the years has really been to ask Him to make His calling clear to make it so clear that for us to do otherwise would feel like disobedience. Otherwise, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the calling part. The gift and the opportunity can be there. We're going to miss the timing unless we ask God and wait, and wait for him to make it so clear that to do otherwise would feel like disobedience. That's a quick answer to a pretty complex question. But I think that's what Paul has illustrated for us in the last five chapters of Acts as he was desirous to go into Asia and now finally is there, and here's the story. Well, my friends, these are the takeaway lessons from Ephesus that we would suggest this morning. There could be, as I mentioned, so many more, but these get us started in the right direction, I think. And they set us up well to hear much of the rest of the input to this church in our New Testament. I think they set us up well for the the Ephesian correspondence. Why? Well, it became challenging for them to discern between believers and unbelievers. That's why John wrote 1 John, probably to Ephesus. Standing firm with confidence in the gospel was a challenge for Timothy, especially addressed in 2 Timothy. Timothy himself seemed to be crumbling a bit or buckling under the weight of the spiritual opposition there in Ephesus. And Paul is strengthening his legs and reminding him of who he is and of the solidity and of the established nature of his faith and urging him to stand firm in that. And surely Paul's letter to the Ephesians is where we learn much about spiritual warfare more than anywhere else. Also, Paul instructed Timothy on how to organize those who were called to be elders and deacons from among all the men in the body. Needful because of the Ephesian elder situation. I think these three lessons set us up well to appreciate much of what's written in the remaining Ephesian correspondence in our New Testament. But that today we're going to have to leave it there. This is the place, though. This is the place, Ephesus that gives us all of this wisdom and instruction was tethered to this city, to this church. Here's where we understand so much of what it looks like to live for God, live for the gospel in an almost indescribably irrational context. May God help us by his grace and by his spirit. Let's pray now, and even as we pray, Musicians, please return to the platform and communion servers. Join me at the front. Heavenly Father, take this experience of Ephesus, I pray, and burn it into our hearts and help us understand and appreciate what an amazing experience Paul had there, but how helpful it is to us in our day. And help us to be strengthened by these lessons and so many more that we can learn from this Study for your glory, for our good, for the mission of the church to be achieved in our day. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.